Hey folks, it's Mo Amir. Just a quick announcement. Mark your calendars Saturday, February 20th on Global BC. I will be one of the co-hosts of the Variety BC Show of Hearts Telethon, and I'm going to be joined by This Is Van Color alumni, Neetu Garcha and Jody Vance, in addition to your favorite Global BC personalities like my best friend Chris Galis, Sophie Louis, Christy Gordon, Caitlin Herbst, Paul Haysom, and many more. It's for a great cause. I look forward to your support as we raise money for kids across the province. So please tune in on Saturday, February 20th on Global BC for the Variety BC Show of Hearts Telethon. It goes from 1.30 p.m. to 5 p.m. And in case you're wondering, I'll be hosting from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. So Saturday, February 20th, Global BC, Variety BC, Show of Hearts Telethon. Check it out. And now, back to the program that you know and love. This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This Is Van Color, I am joined by a popular media personality, podcaster, and author. He's based in Edmonton, Alberta, but we're not going to hold that against him. For a decade, he's been working to increase public awareness of microbes and health. You've read his work in the Huffington Post Canada. You've heard him on CKNW 980 AM, and you've seen him splashed all on the news hours lately. His book, The Germ Code was shortlisted as the book of the year by science writers and communicators of Canada, and his other book, The Germ Files, appeared on the Globe and Mail national bestseller list. We're going to discuss the most sought-after thing in the planet right now, the COVID-19 vaccine. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, which discusses how science fits into our everyday lives. You can catch the Super Awesome Science Show wherever you listen to this podcast, but listen to this podcast first. He is here via the magic of Zoom. He is the germ guy. He is Jason Tetro. Jason, how are you? I am well, thank you. That's good to hear. You don't hear that often right now. You hear a lot of frustration, a lot of people pent up. I know, I know. But the thing is, is you know, this is not my first pandemic. And for the most people who are listening here, it's not your first pandemic either. Um, and we can talk about this a little later. But if someone hasn't figured out what I'm talking about, that is your first indication why there's so much upsetness going on in the community right now. <laughs> because we had a pandemic just 10 years ago. And it was nasty. And it did some really nasty damage to everybody. And when people ask me about it, I'm like, well, yeah. Uh, But so this particular pandemic that we're in shouldn't have taken anyone by surprise. It shouldn't have really taken people off guard the way that it has. And yet, you know, we we now are almost a year down the road from we when we had the the lockdowns and and all of that stuff. And we're looking back and saying, well, how how did all this happen? Well, the reality is, is that this has been happening for millennia. It's just yeah. that we tend to keep forgetting about that. And so <laughs> I appreciate that people are upset and we can definitely start talking about all the different components as to why people are upset. But for me, well, you know, <laughs> it, it's just kind of once in a decade thing. Here we go again. Absolutely. And we'll get into that in a little bit. I do want to focus more so on the vaccines, because that's kind of what's going on. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have questions. I just want to point out, 
This is a first for me because I interviewed you in December on CKNW. So this is the first time where I interviewed someone on the radio first and then had them on the podcast. So this is really cool. I know we had a great chat then. And ever since then, I wanted to do an episode where we are really able to take the time to unpack all this COVID-19 vaccine stuff. I want this to Mm be a comprehensive explainer, at least for where we are right now, for the folks in BC. And you said you were up to the task, so I appreciate you being here. And so my first question, and I'm not embarrassed to ask it, what is a (laughs) vaccine? How does it work? Can you explain it to me very briefly like I'm five, so then I can explain it to people like they're five? All right. Well, well, let's just start off with the definition that you see in, you know, uh, the dictionaries. It's it's officially known as a preparation of a pathogenic agent, something that wants to cause you harm, like a bacterium or a virus or even cancer. And one of its components or products happens to be inside that preparation. This could be a protein, a toxin, or as we've been talking about, messenger RNA. Now, what is a vaccine to you? Well, basically, it's like putting your immune system in the junior leagues. You know, (laughs) we don't see people just starting off in the NHL. You know, they've got to go through the, 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 the system. They end up playing with the Vancouver Giants, right, before they get ready to actually play in the big leagues. Well, it's the same thing with your immune system. And what a vaccine does is it's basically giving your immune system the junior, la- the junior leagues of what it's like to be up against a real infection. Now, mm-hmm. the only difference in this particular case is that only a few people will ever have the actual skills to get into the NHL. But a vaccine <laughs> will give the majority of people the ability to keep up with those big league infections. And here's how it works so that, you know, I want you to sort of close your eyes. Um, sure. we, we're not going to do the a- ASMR, but I'll do it very gently. <laughs> in order to have a good immune response, in order to protect you from infections, what you have to do is make sure that when you're giving these uh, immune cells something to handle, you do it in a small way. And so that small amount is what's in a vaccine. And it goes inside of you. And it does so in a way that it comes up against the immune system. And there's a number of different platforms to do this. And we can talk about that later. But your immune system comes up, bumps up, sees it and says, hey, you're new. I've never seen you before. Do you want to cause harm? And that little bit says, "Mm, yeah. So the immune system's like, well, we don't want that and starts to develop a a process by which it can actually defend your body against the infection. And it does so in a way that is really simple. And you don't really feel all that symptoms that you would normally feel with a regular infection. Now, you do that the first time. And what happens is your immune system can get to a point where it might be able to recognize the real infection, but it may not necessarily put up a strong enough fight. So then you give what we call a booster shot. And when the booster comes in, your immune system goes, hey, I know you. You're not supposed to be here. Okay, mm-hmm. we're going we're gonna to make sure that we have a much, much better response. And that's when you get that really what we call robust response that leads to you having the ability to fight off the infection whenever it happens to be. And then hopefully that vaccine is going to give you that protection, like what we call it officially, for a number of years, if not potentially your lifetime. And that's basically what a vaccine is, how a vaccine works, and what it does for you down the road. Is a vaccine limited to 
viruses? Oh, no, 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 not at all. I mean, we okay. have vaccines against bacteria. We, we, we're actually developing vaccines as we speak against chronic diseases like cancer. Uh, there's hmm. even the potential for being able to develop vaccines against things like obesity and diabetes. So wow. a vaccine is just simply a way of putting your immune system into the junior leagues so that it can be ready to fight in the big leagues against something that intentionally wants to cause you harm. Now, when we talk about diseases specifically, what diseases have vaccines basically eliminated? You know, I, I love it when people start talking about elimination because that's what we want to do. We <laughs> want to eliminate it. And, and I that's agree, I we all do. do. Yeah, exactly. But just to, so, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I just want to make sure that people understand that there's actually a difference between elimination, which is what everybody's using, and something that everybody seems to be wanting, which is called eradication. Now, mm. eradication is literally taking the pathogen and wiping it off the planet. Or, or mm -hmm. at least leaving it for a few high-security laboratories. But we, we, we'll talk about that. Um, so we've only actually eradicated two diseases. One is smallpox, and everybody heard, heard about that. Mm -hmm. And another is called rinderpest, which is kind of like measles for cattle. Now, oh, okay. eradicating is, is really, really tough. Okay, it's because essentially what you have to do is you have to protect the entire population of everybody so that the virus cannot really get into that population at all. So we were able to do that with smallpox. Uh, we were able to do this with rinderpest. We have not been able to do this with a number of others that we are hoping to eradicate. But mm -hmm. what we have been able to do is actually put them in a situation where they've been removed from a local environment, a local population. And, you know, you may still end up having a few cases here and there, but there won't be outbreaks. There won't be a wide audience that's threatened. Now, that's elimination. And, you know, right. we can actually look at a local environment like, I don't know, Vancouver to find out what has been eliminated from Vancouver. Well, we eliminated measles. We eliminated rubella. We eliminated rabies. Uh, polio, well, I mean, that's pretty much eliminated all over the world, but yes, polio, and something called syphilis. <laughs> I'm sure right. you've heard of mm. syphilis. Now, the thing I've is, only heard of it, Jason, to be very clear. I have only oh, heard yes, of it I'm in sure, passing. I, I, I am absolutely <laughs> convinced that there has not been a chancre on you. But anyways, to coldly get out of the TMI world, <laughs> let us start looking at what elimination actually means for us. What it means is that we have confidence that that particular pathogen isn't in our community, and that's great. Mm -hmm. But what it doesn't mean is that it can't come back into our community. And while right. we have eliminated all of that list that I talked about, there are a few that are making a comeback. And we have heard about measles making a comeback, especially in small localized environments. And we do know that syphilis is trying to make a comeback. And well, you know, barrier protection is really, really functional and really, really good. But people just, again, don't seem to want to be using that. And I hate to make the link, but since we do have COVID-19 around these days, barrier protection against syphilis is kind of like barrier protection against COVID. It works. But mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, that's digressing a little bit and, and maybe we can get into that maybe another podcast. But I just want to be sure that people understand that even though we've eliminated something with vaccination, it doesn't necessarily mean that it can't come back. 
And measles and perhaps syphilis, are they coming back because there are people that just don't want to be immunized or they don't want their kids to be vaccinated? Yeah, from a measles perspective, that's what's happening. Uh, syphilis, we don't really have an effective vaccine against syphilis. We've been trying to make oh, one okay. for like ever. Um, but uh, the best way to stop syphilis is basically to protect oneself. And mm -hmm. we know that there are a number of other types of diseases, uh, including HIV, for which the pandemic continues. Um, it's a different type of pandemic, granted. Um, mm -hmm. But when you're using barrier protection, what it's doing is it's helping to maintain an elimination status. It's something we are going to be talking about with COVID-19 down the road, but first we got to kind of get rid of this pandemic first. So how come some vaccines need to be taken every year, like the flu shot for influenza, mm -hmm. and then some vaccines very periodically every 10 years, and then some vaccines for life? Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons behind this. So let's just talk about the flu vaccine. We have to get that every mm -hmm. year, right? Well, what ends up happening is that uh, viruses tend to evolve. And evolution is incredibly important for the survival of any species. Uh, and you know, when evolution happens, it kind of changes the face of that particular virus so that our immune system kind of doesn't really recognize it anymore and therefore it gives the opportunity for the virus to do something. Now, the face of a virus kind of doesn't really make a lot of sense when you think about it um, from a macro perspective. So rather than thinking about the face of, say, influenza virus, I want you to think about the face of the city of Vancouver. Okay. okay, there was a great story done about it many, many years ago. And it, what it did is it actually looked at the face of Vancouver from about 1919 to present day. And it's amazing how the changes have happened. And if you mm -hmm. were to look at the skyline of Vancouver in 1980 versus, say, 1919, you wouldn't think it's the exact same uh, city. Right, And that's basically what is happening when it comes to something like a flu, is that it's constantly changing itself, just like the skyline. And so what ends up happening is our immune system has to constantly alter itself, and it can do one of two ways. It can either do so by essentially getting the, uh, the virus itself and leading to an infection, which nobody wants, or mm -hmm. we get a new vaccine every year so that we are preventing that virus from getting inside of us. And that's basically what's happening. Now, when we start talking about longer down the road vaccinations, we're talking about, say, a mumps or a measles. And the reason for that happens to be that our immune responses don't necessarily give us full protection over the course of our lives, and what is called waning immunity can happen. And what this means is that the immune system isn't as strong today as it might have been 10 years ago. And so we get these boosters to be able to help us out. And they're a little bit different than the booster I talked about a few minutes ago, because these are essentially boosters that are designed to say, hey, remember me, I'm bad, as opposed to, well, you need to amp up your, uh, your response. Right. Now, when it comes to COVID-19, the big question that we all have is, is it going to be like flu? Is it going to be like measles and mumps? Or is it going to be something completely different where we only get one shot and it's going to protect us for life? Well, it's probably right. not going to be the last one. It may so we don't know, being, actually, is what you're saying. No, no we, okay. we just don't. 
It, it's hmm. still so brand new. And the virus is still figuring itself out in the human population. So we don't know exactly if it's going to be like a common cold, if it's going to be like a flu, or if it's going to be like a measles hmm. or mumps. What we do know is that we have the ability to make a vaccine so quickly that we can probably catch up to the virus so that every time we see a new variant or, or strain difference that could potentially make our vaccines less effective, we can develop one very quickly so that we can be on top of it, just like we're doing with the flu. So it doesn't matter which of those three options exists when it comes to COVID-19, we're ready for it. And I think people really need to understand that. So let's get into that, because usually vaccines take years to develop. And you just talked about HIV and you talked about syphilis as well, that, you know, they're still working on trying to develop something. How come the COVID-19 <laughs> vaccine was produced so fast with such efficiency? Because just as a layman, I'm looking at it and going, mm, it, that feels like it's fishy because every other vaccine, you know, at minimum takes almost a decade yeah. to develop. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever heard the term uh, overnight sensation? <laughs> yes, of you know, course. You, you, you have someone who just all of a sudden takes the world by storm. And it's like, oh my goodness, that person is, you know, incredible talent. We just got to follow this person. He's, you know, he or she is taking over the world. And what we forget is that that person probably spent the last 20, 30 years practicing, getting it perfect so that they can actually do what they're doing right now. Well, it's the same thing with vaccines. We think of the COVID-19 vaccine as this overnight sensation. But what I'm here to tell you is that it's been 30 years in the making. Because back in the 1990s, when I was doing research and we were looking at how to use genetic material to be able to help a person in terms of treatment, it really was a totally different concept. Okay. It was called gene therapy at the time. And what we mm -hmm. wanted to do was we wanted to actually use these pieces of genetic material to be able to cure different diseases. And, and that sort of still continued on. But then eventually what happened is they said, you know what, we could be doing this as a vaccine. And this happened around 2008. And then mm -hmm. that started developing into this idea of a vaccine that could possibly just be um, a piece of genetic material inside of a shell. And the University of British Columbia, believe it or not, was one of the major uh, uh, research institutes, research hubs developing this idea, whether it's Pfizer or Moderna or any of them that have this lipid nanoparticle, you have to thank UBC for it. And it's, a, it's hmm. fascinating, that story. Um, so what ends up happening is that as these things are developed, okay, rather than just doing everything from scratch like we used to do back in the 1950s and 60s, we started to develop platforms so that we could then fill in the blanks. So just imagine a macro in a word processing document, right? You know, you bring right. it up, you fill in the blanks, and then you print out this filled out record. Well, instead of a, you know, a, a, a printed record, you're literally getting a printed vaccine. Um, and then that sort of helps you to be able to um, bring it to the phase trials very, very quickly. And then what ends up happening is that as you have those phase trials going from phase one to phase two to phase three, you need a lot of money to do so. And we're hearing about certain companies that are, you know, not able to raise that type of money. 
Whereas when you have very large corporations like the Pfizer's, the Johnson and Johnson's, AstraZeneca's, and even to some extent mm. Moderna, they have that ability to just push these phases very, very quickly. So that's really what's going on is we've got a platform and then we have, uh, you know, the ability to do the phase trial so quickly that eventually it just happens in a matter of months as opposed to, say, um, you know, years or, or even decades. And so when you talk about this platform specifically, the analogy is to what we're calling an mRNA vaccine. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so what is okay. an mRNA vaccine? How is it different than other vaccines? Okay. Yeah, sure. So what an mRNA vaccine stands for is it's actually called a messenger RNA vaccine. So in order for us to sort of get an understanding of what all that means, I'm going to have to take you back a little bit. Well, maybe a lot <laughs> uh, <laughs> to a little bit of grade school biology. Okay. So in order for us to live, we all need what's known as a genetic code. And, and I'm sure mm -hmm. you've all heard about DNA, right? So DNA is inside of every one of our cells, and it's inside what's known as the nucleus. So imagine a big circle, and then you have a circle inside of it, and then you have the DNA in there. Um, that DNA is the code to life. The thing is, though, it just kind of sits there, and it gets, you know, it gets multiplied, and, and then it just becomes part of another cell, and so on and so on. And that's really all it's doing. So in order for it to actually function, it has to come outside of the nucleus and do something. And it doesn't really do that. So we have to find a way to be able to make that happen. And so what is now happening inside of well, pretty much every cell is that that DNA gets carbon copied, if you will, into what is known as RNA, messenger RNA. And that messenger RNA is taken outside of the nucleus where it can actually do something. Now, what this actually does, for the most part, is act as a code to be able to translate proteins, which are essentially the, the functional parts of our body. I mean, we have proteins all over the place, and they do all sorts of things, and if we didn't have proteins, we'd all die. So, mRNA is really the code that is necessary to make those functional proteins. So, if you're going to do gene therapy, or if you're going to make a vaccine, that's where you start. You don't start with DNA because that's not going to do anything for you. You have to start with the mRNA. And then what you do is you say, okay, good. I've got my mRNA. And it's going to translate into proteins. We're all good. Now comes the big question. I have mRNA in a Petri dish. How the heck right. am I going to get that into a human being? <laughs> yeah. And that's where this whole idea of platforms comes in. Because every single one of the platforms that are being used to take that mRNA and put it into us has been developed over the last 30 years. So there are lipid nanoparticles, as I talked about earlier. There are what we call vectors, which essentially are other kinds of viruses, common cold viruses for the most part, that have been designed to get inside to our cells and release that mRNA without actually causing us any kind of harm. And there are also other possible methods of doing this, but those are the two that are really sort of focused on as we speak at the moment. And then, mm -hmm. so what ends up happening is that mRNA is then injected into the body, and then either the virus or the lipid nanoparticle comes to one of our cells, attaches to it, and puts the mRNA inside of our cells. 
And then when it's inside of our cells, what ends up happening is that it asks permission from our cell to be able to produce these proteins. And most of the time that actually permission is given, so that basically makes the protein. But sometimes it doesn't, and it just gets chewed up. If the permission is given, then a protein is made that then is essentially used to signal the immune system, as I said at the onset, to basically mm -hmm. put you into that junior league training so that you're ready for an infection. That can happen a couple of times in every cell, but there comes a point where the cell itself is like, you know what? You're no longer welcome here. It's just that they don't kick out the mRNA. They just eat it up and, and what we call degrade it. So right. there's no entry of the mRNA into the nucleus. There's no change in our DNA. And I know a lot of people have asked me this, so I want to make <laughs> sure you understand. <laughs> there is no changing of our DNA. Yeah, I've been reading. People are saying, oh, it's going to change your DNA. That's why it's dangerous. So you're saying it doesn't affect your no. DNA at all. Okay. No. The only kind of RNA that ever gets into the nucleus, that ever gets into your body and, and into your DNA is known as what we call a lentivirus. Okay. And the only lentivirus that we know of that is capable of doing it, that is that, that essentially you will know is called HIV. Mm. So if it's not HIV and it's got mRNA, it's not getting into your nucleus and it's not going to change your DNA. It's just as simple as that. So is that why the HIV vaccine has been so difficult to develop? Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, having been <laughs> involved answer, in that I myself. Guess, I want to go back to. Yeah. It, it, let me just put it this way. The HIV vaccine has been a real pain because the target cell of the virus is your immune cells that we need to be able to defeat the virus. And so when you make a vaccine, you got to somehow figure out a way of being able to improve your immune system without allowing the virus to basically expand while your immune system is getting used to uh, the, the HIV itself. Essentially, we figured it was going to be a race to the finish. And unfortunately, as we always find out, <laughs> uh, HIV and, and microbes always tend to win. So yeah, mm -hmm. the HIV vaccine is, is a really, really tough one to figure out. Um, we have some ideas now. We're, we're sort of heading in a different direction, and I think there's an opportunity. But as we speak right now, uh, there really is no opportunity to develop a vaccine. So again, getting back to that barrier protection I talked about is the best way to stop HIV. So when we talk about mRNA vaccines, have we ever had these before or is this brand new? Well, from a vaccine perspective, it is brand new. Uh, we have actually seen mRNA uh, being used as a therapy to be able to help uh, diseases. And so in that context, when companies with an mRNA vaccine went to the FDA and saying, hey, look, here's our platform, they already had the ability to say, you've already approved a similar kind of platform just for a therapy, not for a vaccine. But we hope that that will at least get us past, you know, the first couple of stages of approval. And it did. And that's one of the mm -hmm. reasons why both Pfizer and Moderna were sort of um, first at the post, if you will, when it came to approvals, because a lot of the work that they had been doing had already been done from the regulatory side. So it made it a little less troublesome for them to be able to get where they are today. So when we talk about the current vaccines, 
Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, will they cover the new COVID variants that we're hearing about from the UK, South Africa, and Brazil? And I, and I do want to also add, and i sort of related, but the, these are not all mRNA vaccines, right? Oh, no, they are. Um, Pfizer, oh, they Moderna. Are. Okay. Uh, yeah, so Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson Johnson, they're all using what is known as a full-length spike protein mRNA. Um, oh, okay. The way that it's been done differs depending on which particular uh, vaccine it happens to be, but they're all doing the exact same thing. And that is putting that mRNA into your cells, as I talked about, asking permission. Um, when they're using the virus, uh, it kind of forces permission, but that's semantics. Um, producing the protein, putting it on the cell, showing it to the immune system, the immune system gets trained, and away you go. So when we talk about the variants, the big issue comes down to, well, if a variant happens and it changes the face of the virus, much like I talked about with the flu or, you know, the, the Vancouver mm -hmm. skyline, is it going to make the immune system less effective? Well, the answer to that is not really, because what ended up happening was that the researchers, as they were developing the vaccine, realized that they had one of two particular options, okay? They could either come up with a one-prong approach, which was essentially to, uh, you know, base, give the, the immune system one very small piece to look at and say, here you go, figure out how to do work with this. Or they could actually create a diverse approach so that the immune system had a number of different options. And I think the best way for anybody to understand that happens to be the concept of football, CFL. Like, our, you know, the BC Lions, right? Can sure. you imagine the BC Lions playing defense against any team with just one play, the Blitz? <laughs> I mean, every other team would just simply go longer, do a screen, and, and BC would just be basically like 50 to nothing every single game. Right. It's why you have a number of options you can put on the field. You can do zone, man-to-man, -man, nickel, gap. And of course, there are always the trick or stunt plays that the defenses can do. I mean, you want to have that diversity so that gives you an opportunity to be able to stop the opposing team's offense. Well, mm -hmm. that's essentially what's happening with respect to the vaccine is the researchers chose that large, diverse defense by giving the immune system instead of one very small little region, by the way, we'd have called it the receptor binding domain or RBD if you want to get specific. Instead of doing that little domain, they gave the entire spike protein, which is huge. How do you know it's huge? When you look at a, a, a coronavirus, it's that nubby bit on the outside. It's huge. <laughs> so what ends up happening is it gives the opportunity for the immune system to create that diverse response. Now, as that is happening, what, can, what goes on in nature is that the virus itself is going to mutate a little. It's going to have these variants. And what right. we're finding out is that the vaccine has such a diverse response that it can deal with a variant that has maybe one, two, or even five different mutations, even in hmm. that receptor binding domain, and can still be stopped. Now, it will reduce the effectiveness, and we are hearing of Moderna and possibly others developing newer versions of mRNA vaccines that address these particular variants, 
But at the end of the day, when you're starting with 95% efficacy uh, and, and, you know, the flu shot on average is about 60%, you've got a lot of breathing room to be able to work with. One question that I've heard people asking, and I've heard people comment on this, is this idea of shedding. I've heard mm-hmm. that if you take the COVID-19 vaccines, you can actually spread the virus for a short period of time afterwards. Is that true? Um, no. When we talk about shedding, what we're talking about is the release of actual whole viruses into the environment. And this is something that happens when you've been exposed to the virus itself. Now, Mm -hmm. the fact is that in order for you to be able to release the virus into the environment, you have to come into contact with the virus in the environment first. Right. And so, essentially, you've come into contact with the virus through exposure because you weren't wearing barrier protection or something along those lines. When we talk about the vaccine, What's happening is that little piece of mRNA is being put inside of your body so that it can make that spike protein. That is it. And so what ends up happening is you don't create an entire virus. You only create the spike protein. And as I said earlier, that mRNA actually gets chewed up. So it's only going to produce the spike protein for a very small period of time. Hmm. that's the beauty of having these types of vaccines is that it's only producing the spike protein. It's not actually producing full virus. So when people talk about shedding while you have been vaccinated, it has nothing to do with the vaccine itself. And what it really means is that after you've been vaccinated, if you come into exposure with the virus and it grows inside of you, In the first two to three weeks after you've got the shot, you'll still be able to spread the virus to other people. Once you've gotten the second Mm. shot, and it's been a week after that second shot, based on studies that we have seen in uh, animals such as primates, you won't be able to shed the virus, even if you've come into exposure to it. But again, that's a six-week process. So basically, you can carry and pass on the virus after you've been vaccinated, but only for a short period of time. Exactly. And that has nothing to do with the vaccine itself. So this Mm -hmm. is very, very different from other vaccines people have talked about where they think, you know, it's a live virus. uh, And as a result, it's producing more live virus. And as a result of that, you're creating enough virus to shed to another person and spreading it. And we've heard this with respect to measles. And that's just not happening. So if I'm vaccinated, let's say I wait two or three weeks, do I still have to wear a mask afterwards? Oh, yeah. I mean, you still have to wear a mask. And and the reason that you <laughs> need to wear a mask is because, well, honestly, even if you're only spreading a small amount of the virus through shedding because you've been exposed to it, you can still put it into somebody else. if you are within close contact with them. So I think Mm. one of the biggest things that you need to really focus on is making sure that we have that um, mass of of, of a response in terms of people getting uh, the vaccine. 
And then sort of when we get to that point, six weeks after that, when everybody has gotten to that stage where even if they do come into contact with the virus, they're not going to be making enough of it to give to somebody else. That's when we can start talking about maybe reducing uh, mask use uh, and, and maybe reducing the, the mandatory requirements. Right. So what if I already had COVID, and I know that for a fact, I have not, but just as a hypothetical, mm -hmm. should I still get a vaccine? <sighs> well, I, I like to call this sort of um, the umbrella umbrage when it comes to this topic. And, and it's not the first time we've heard it. I mean, we hear this all the time with flu vaccines. Um, and, and what it comes down to is, you know, I've already had it, so is it really worth my while to get the vaccine? And mm -hmm. I kind of want to put it into a context that people in Vancouver can understand. So rather than an umbrella umbrage, I I'm going to call this the Vancouver vexation. And, and I okay. say this because I have come to Vancouver numerous times. And, and there's one particular aspect of the geographic nature or the climactic nature of Vancouver. And I don't know if you know this or not, but perhaps you do. It tends to rain a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh my goodness. Every single time I have been in Vancouver, it has been raining. And sometimes, I mean, really pelting down. And all I'm thinking is, why, why am I here? Um, but seriously, no, I love Vancouver. Seriously, I do. Um, that, that's why I'm in the sunniest place in Canada, Edmonton. But still, I love Vancouver. Uh, but it's not always pelting down, right? I mean, sometimes yeah. it's just kind of spritzing. And when it's mm -hmm. spritzing, you want to ask yourself, do I, should I carry an umbrella? I mean, it can still be a pain to cart around with you everywhere. Um, and you may never have to use it. Now, granted, people who are not used to the weather, like say, oh, I don't know, me, would probably still <laughs> take that umbrella with me. But people who are more naturally uh, acclimatized to this may just simply say, you know what, eh, getting wet, it's not that bad of a thing. So right. in that context, it really comes down to the umbrella idea. Do we actually have the umbrella with us, even if we're used to what we see um, on a day-to-day -day basis? Mm. So in that context, the answer obviously is probably not. We don't necessarily need that umbrella. We don't necessarily need that vaccine because we're already immune. But in that same light, we also know that the immunity that we get from an infection is lasting maybe as long as a cold and flu season. We're going to find out more as we kind of go along, but we don't know if it's you know, finite. We don't know if it's infinite. We don't know when we're going to need to have some kind of a booster from the virus to be able to get our immune system to stay uh, active as opposed to waning. So in that light, we know that if you get the vaccine, you are going to have a nice strong immune system for a certain period of time. So in that light, maybe it might be better to trust the training of a vaccine than to trust your immune system, which may have been acclimatized to a previous infection. Right. And when it comes to that, that, that sort of decision-making, if you will, in the short term, while we're talking about vaccine shortages and, you know, maybe there's just not enough for people to go around and we still want to protect the most vulnerable, well, you know, it, it might be 
something you would say, you know what, I'll, I'll wait till the next phase. But mm -hmm. once we have enough of a glut of vaccines that everybody can get vaccinated, I, I would still suggest that you think about, you know, rolling up your sleeve. So let's get into those supply issues, because there is a narrative that Canada has a supply issues. Not enough vaccine was purchased, at least in the first phase, and provinces are running out. But we also hear that Canada bought multiple times its population of vaccines. So what's happening here? Is it a problem where we just didn't buy enough for the short term, but it is coming long term? What's happening? Well, I, I think it's because everybody wants something in the short term. Um, let, let me ask you something. Have, have you ever actually taken transit uh, from downtown during the evening? Um, not really, but I have. Yeah, I live. I don't live in downtown, yeah, I mean, but I, it, I've had that experience. Sure, it gets busy. Yeah, I mean, it can. Yeah, it can get busy, but as it goes on and further on into the evening, it does get easier over time, right? Mm. And, you know, the trains and buses, there's going to be lots of space and, and you're going to be able to get home in a, in a fairly smooth way, right? Mm -hmm. Now, imagine what it was like during a Canucks game after the storied Stanley Cup run in 2011. <laughs> it was crazy busy. I mean, there's busy in terms of like the work hour rush, but then after a Canucks game, after uh -huh. the playoffs, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I know. Exactly. The reason I say that is that's what we're dealing with right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. sure. We are basically in the Stanley Cup playoffs against COVID-19. And, <laughs> and we are home ice right now. And basically, we all kind of want to be able to go home. We all want to take our masks off. We all want to relax. But we can't do it because, well, the buses and the trains are packed. And that's right. essentially what is happening with respect to the vaccine. So there isn't enough to go around in the world. And we're seeing some sort of vaccine nationalism or, you know, continentalism, if you're looking at Europe, such that they're trying to maximize the amount of doses for their people in Canada really doesn't have that huge of a, of a leg to stand on in the short term. Yes, we've ordered a glut of vaccines and, and, and we keep hearing that we're going to have them by, you know, the end of March, but everybody wants it mm -hmm. now, right? And so in that light, what has happened is some of the production companies that are involved with Pfizer and Moderna have essentially said that they can't keep up. And it's not just a matter of they can't keep up. They just simply can't do it. And so mm -hmm. what has happened is that whether it's the plant in Poors, Belgium for Pfizer, or whether it's one of the plants uh, that are in Switzerland for Moderna, they've had to retool. And in order to retool, you got to shut down production for a little bit. I mean, that's just the way it works. So what's going to happen is that they're going to expand their production. They're going to be able to produce so much more. But that short period of time is unfortunately happening at the worst possible moment. And the thing is, is that Pfizer actually had intended on doing this a couple months from now. It's just because that downstream information was, was just saying we can't, you know, we can't survive. They had to do the upgrades now. So mm -hmm. basically, that's what's going on is everybody wants to have that vaccine. Everybody wants to have a seat or at least get on the train. And it's just not happening. And so the fact of the matter is we need to have a little bit of patience. It's going to take a few more weeks, but we're going to get to a point where we are going to have a massive amount coming in. And 
You know, did you ever watch the show Friends? Here and there, yeah. I was more of a Seinfeld guy. Yeah. I am familiar with Friends. Oh, I know. Yeah, I mean, Seinfeld was absolutely fantastic. But in Friends, <laughs> I think everybody who's ever loved that show realizes that sometimes blips happen. Right. Well, okay, maybe not a blip, a break. <laughs> breaks happen. And the fact is, is that sometimes when breaks happen, people do silly things. And then what they do is they say, we were on a break to try and justify it. Well, at the end of the day, we're going to look back at these few weeks, probably no longer than a month, and try and defend the craziness that's gone on by essentially saying, we were on a blip. So please, just have a little bit of patience, and soon we are going to get back to normal. And, you know, my pandemic timeline has always said that the end is going to come probably at the later part of August, well, middle August, maybe later August now with a little bit of changes, but we're still on track for that. One thing I want to ask you about is Pfizer has asked Health Canada to approve the extraction of six vaccine doses from every vial of vaccine mm. instead of five. And apparently yeah. this method requires a low dead space syringe, which is not very mm -hmm. common and, of course, is in very short supply given the demand. Since our contract with Pfizer is in doses, not vials, that means that instead yeah. of 8 million vials, we're getting 6.7 million vials. Do we mm -hmm. even have the capacity in terms of syringes or technology to be able to do this, to get six doses out of each vial instead of five? Well, you need three things. One, you, you need the equipment. Uh, two, you need to have the expertise. And three, you have to have the training. Mm -hmm. And the last two, we just don't have. We can get the equipment. <laughs> I mean, yes, there are shortages and everything like that. But um, for me, if someone asked me to basically create a 0.3 microliter dead space in a one mil syringe, I would just look at them and say, what's wrong with you? <laughs> it's just as simple as that. <laughs> this is not something that you can do really easy, people. This is hard. And so the fact of the matter is that Pfizer is trying to worm their way out of making less dose or vials for us so that they can then provide more across the board. The idea of going for six, when the whole concept was actually to have enough volume to be able to cover for the normal 10 to 15% loss that you would have every single time you use a syringe in that bottle. I mean, I get, under I, I get it, but come on, you're just asking way too much. And so in that light, while they are asking for permission, I kind of hope that it's going to be, look, we'll give you like an interim authority until you can start mass producing those 2 billion doses a year out of Poor's Belgium. But I don't want this being a common thing going on because it's going to lead to even more stress on the wonderful healthcare workers who are doing this. And more importantly, it's going to lead to a lot more people getting disappointed when they find out that we just weren't able to get that sixth out of every single vial. And so we're going to miss out on, say, 6,000 doses simply because of dead space. I mean, this is, we, we've increased our vocabulary in this pandemic world a lot. That's yeah. one aspect of vocabulary I just wish would not get expanded into the general public. We don't need to be talking about this. 
so basically you're saying it's not going to happen. It's just really not possible to get six doses out of five, out of a vial. It is possible, but I mean, the amount but of here work, it's not effort, possible. training, all of that. No, yeah. not at the moment, no. Yeah. So one of the issues with this current supply shortage is that now we're starting to see a delay between the first and second doses. I mean, there's all this pressure mm-hmm. on the provinces mm-hmm. to administer the doses, but then you have to keep in mind that you want to keep enough for those second doses. And BC went from like, 20 days between doses to 30-something days, and now we're at 42 days between doses. Is this a problem, and will this alter the vaccine's effectiveness? Um, It's a problem, yes, uh, because (laughs) the monograph, in other words, the official document that allowed for this particular vaccine to be used in Canada, says 21 days for Pfizer, 28 days for Moderna. So if you're going longer than that, there's a problem. Is Mm -hmm. it going to alter the effectiveness? Well, that's a totally different question. See, the first one is procedural and, and regulatory. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of these policy type guys. So for me, that, that's a huge issue. I get itchy. The second half, though, is kind of where the, um, uh, the, the on the ground, inside the body, immune system getting trained perspective comes into play. It was never tested for. It was never really looked at at any great statistical strength. But what we do know is that in both cases, 42 days was the length between first and second shot for some of the participants in the studies. And it looks like they did have a robust immune response that was going to be able to help them protect against a challenge with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Mm -hmm. So in that particular case... It does look like going to 42 days will be okay. It does look like going to 42 days will still give you an opportunity to develop a strong enough immune response that we can attain that ability to vaccinate enough people that we don't have to wear masks down the road. Mm -hmm. Is it optimal? No. And I think that what will happen is as we go further, 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 we're going to hear about the third shot the booster shot for the booster. And when we have enough doses on hand, it's not going to be something anyone's really going to care about. It's really going to be more a matter of people saying, "Ah, do I really want to go and get that third dose? And I think that will come with time as to whether or not people will want to or not. And the closer that Mm -hmm. we get to the end of this thing, the less likely people are going to be to take time out of their day to seek out a shot that may or may not give them extra or added protection. Just a really quick question. Can you mix and match the brands? So say if your first shot was uh, Pfizer, can you get your second shot from Moderna or do you have to stick to that brand? Vaccines are not clothes or beds or little things (laughs) that you can buy at the farmer's market. Mixing and matching is not something you do with vaccines. Please do not do that. You you know, a a good friend of mine, Jody Vance, uh, you've probably heard of her. You've probably heard her on the radio. She's been on the show. She's been on the show. Yeah. There you go. Uh, she, She told me that she got a vaccine and she called herself Team Pfizer. And I'm totally okay with that. So once you get the vaccine, ask them, what vaccine did I get? And you're going to be that team. All right. And that actually right. does kind of go down to Seinfeld because you don't really want to be switching teams, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so there, I know you're an optimist, but there was an Economist Intelligence Unit analysis 
saying that Canada will not have widely available vaccines until mid-2022, so next year, based on Mm. what we're seeing in terms of supply procurement and rollout. Is that the expectation? I mean, you're you're talking about August and September, but then there's this other report saying, no, 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 next year. Yeah, the the reason that this is happening is because a lot of these economic studies are looking at current. And what they're not doing is they're not doing that forward-looking far enough to be able to identify how we're going to be able to receive more. Mm -hmm. And so in that light, if we were to continue at the rate we're going at the moment, it will take longer. It would probably be Christmas, um, maybe even the new year. And then after that, another three months until we have that glut of of vaccines. Mm -hmm. What I'm counting on, and if you want, we can talk about it, are the other vaccines coming into play. So we've got Moderna and we've got Pfizer. If we keep up with them, yeah, it's going to be a while. We bring in AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson or even Novavax and the whole game changes because that glut is going to come very, very quickly because these things are cheap, they're easy to make, and more importantly, they're stable at either refrigeration temperature or room temperature, which means you don't need to have the cold chain. It's not ice cream and it's definitely not minus 80. So when that happens, you'll be able to get the COVID vaccine at your pharmacy. You'll be able to get the COVID vaccine at, a, at any of the um, you know, pop-ups that we have. It's going to be just like the flu vaccine campaigns. And we can do full vaccinations in a matter of weeks, as we have found out, with flu vaccine. All we need to do is make sure that we have the vac- the, enough of those vaccines. So once those three come into play, I think we're going to be in really, really good place. So let's talk about AstraZeneca for a second, because when you and I first started chatting, and I know we chatted in December, but when we were planning out to get you on the podcast, you told me that this was going to be a game changer. When will we see this vaccine in Canada? Because as you just said, you know, it's cheaper, it's easier to produce. You actually expected this vaccine to be approved by now, right? Yeah, um, about that. <laughs> <laughs> so. Let me explain to you. The reason I thought this was a game changer was because they had done their studies in 18 to 55-year-olds. So the whole idea was that this particular vaccine would get approved and start hitting the younger generations so that we would have a complementary vaccination schedule so that we could use the mRNA vaccines for the elderly because we know they work. We could use the AstraZeneca for the younger generations because we know it works. And we would have that sort of flanking approach in order for us to be able to, you know, to to get to that stage where we need to. Basically, imagine two BC ferries serving two completely different groups coming across heck of a lot better than just one, right? Right. Well, the problem is, and we only found this out this week, AstraZeneca wanted to go for the over 55s as well. And when they did that, it got complicated because the trial no longer was relying on all this beautiful, gorgeous, oh my goodness, you know, melt in your mouth data that they had for the 1855s. They wanted to find, to get data for those people who were above. And let me tell you something, anyone who's ever done clinical trials in the elderly knows 
that in comparison to doing clinical trials with younger individuals, it can go from being a nice, easy walk on the seawall to basically trying to run up grass grind. <laughs> it's so hard. So hard. And so as a result of that. First of all, I love that you have all these Vancouver references lined up. I really do appreciate that. Well, not just that. The fact is I've done this. I mean, that's the beautiful thing. Is I, I, I mean, I'm not necessarily a Vancouverite because I still hate the rain. But I got to tell you, I absolutely love Vancouver. I've been there so many times. Mm-hmm. It's just like a favorite place of mine. Um, and, and the idea is that when that happens, you, you can't get the data. And when you can't get the data, you can't get the approval. Right. And so what initially should have just simply been, um, you know, an easy, an easy approval has now become this sort of wrench in the cogs. And so we may not see an approval unless they bring it back down below 55 for a period of hmm. time. Um, now, thankfully, Johnson Johnson seems to have come to the front of the line and they seem to be doing pretty well. And Novavax is now coming in and they're making an appearance. So while AstraZeneca is figuring itself out, I think that we're going to have an opportunity to see Johnson Johnson and maybe even Novavax come up and make up for it. So hmm. I'm a little less optimistic now about game changing approvals. But as I said, once we have those other two now and preferably three coming into play is definitely going to give us what we need to be able to get to the end of this in as short a period of time as possible. Now, we know that all residents and staff of all of BC's long-term care homes have been offered vaccines, according to Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. I've personally heard from police officers and teachers that they feel like they should be amongst the first in line to be vaccinated too, and they make a very convincing argument. But BC is rolling out the vaccine by age after it hits the long-term care facilities, medical professionals Mm -hmm. in the field, remote and isolated communities. After it hits those, then it's going by age. What's your take on that? Is age the best way to roll this out? Like, what about those police officers and teachers who are also, you know, kind of on the front lines? No, I totally agree with you. Um, when we go into decision-making and, and, and policy discussions, the first thing we're presented with is how to d- break down the priorities. And the easiest one is a balance between external and internal risk. So external risk refers to the potential for an exposure during our day-to-day activities. And this is where we're talking about teachers, police officers, um, you know, frontline staff, Uh, even grocery store attendants, right? Mm -hmm. The internal risk refers to a weakened immune system that simply cannot handle the infection. And this Mm. is where we start talking about the frail, the elderly, those with pre-existing conditions, those who happen to be on immunosuppressive or other types of agents. And they're equally important. But when it comes to how we're going to roll out a vaccine, we have to think about, well, what are we trying to protect first and foremost? And time and time again, every time you've heard Dr. Bonnie Henry talk, the most important thing that we're trying to protect is our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Our healthcare system is all about our internal risk. And so from that perspective, if that is the direction you want to take, then naturally 
the internal risk will take priority over the external risk. And that's why you start looking at ages. And that's why you want to make sure long-term care facilities and also those who are, um, you know, the most vulnerable uh, from an immunological perspective should be coming to the front of the line. That's mm -hmm. not necessarily the way everybody sees it. That's not necessarily the best way. But you always have to realize that there's a trade-off when it comes to something like vaccinations, especially when you have shorter amounts of supplies. And, you know, I, I understand I'm sounding a little bit more serious, but this is something that I, I really want people to understand is that we do know that isolation is not good for mental health. We do mm -hmm. know that, you know, kids being home at, uh, from school can cause major problems, uh, not just for the parents, but for the kids themselves. We do know that there are other issues that are taking place inside, interior to people, when we look at what is happening as a result of this pandemic. But if, I, but if our goal is to prevent hospitalizations, ICUs, and deaths, then we have to focus on that internal risk before anything else. And, and mm -hmm. it's hard to say that because I do want to be able to say that teachers should be getting the vaccine, that police officers should be getting the vaccine. And that's also why, for me, the whole idea of that AstraZeneca going from 18 to 55 as an indication was the best approach possible. Mm -hmm. And so I still think we're going to have enough vaccines by the spring to be able to serve everybody. It's just in this blip that we're in, we're having a lot of serious discussions about who comes before whom. And I just hope that we understand that there's a reason as to why this is happening and not simply because the government or Dr. Bonnie Henry is looking away from another important group. Right. Do you have any concerns about the vaccine rollout in Canada as a whole or maybe specific to BC? Not really. Um, Looking at the rollout as it's happening right now, things could have gone a lot worse. <laughs> sure. And, and the reason they could I say go that a is lot worse. Well, I, yeah, but what, what I mean by that is that when we start thinking about how a rollout can happen, there's one of two different ways that you can approach it. Okay. One is to get the vaccine to the masses, and the other is to get the masses to the vaccine. When we first had the Pfizer approved, it was stored at minus 80, which means that it would be impossible to get the vaccine to the masses. Mm -hmm. And so we had to figure out how we were going to do that. And, you know, Project Laser by the Canadian Forces was amazing. And so they had those 14 hubs where people could essentially bring the Pfizer vaccine, and then they were going to be able to do the distribution. And it went better than anyone could have expected. You know why? Because it was quiet. For those first few weeks, we didn't hear about any complaints. We didn't hear about any problems. Sure, there were a couple of side effects here and there, but at the end of the day, it just went smoothly. Even I was kind of mm -hmm. shocked at how well that went. And then when Moderna came around and we went from minus 80 to the ice cream cold chain, it got even better. Mm -hmm. And granted, we still would have to fly out to remote communities in order to make sure that it, it was still viable in terms of the dosage over, you know, a few days, that it was still smooth. We didn't hear any problems until we started hearing about the fact that the supply shortages that we heard about in Europe started affecting us. And now mm -hmm. we have 
the complaints. We have the hiccups. But remember what I said. Just like Ross and Rachel, we are on a blip. <laughs> sure. All right? And eventually, we are going to eventually get to the point where we have enough vaccines so that everybody can get served. Everybody can roll up their sleeves. Who wants to? And we're going to put an end to this pandemic. And I'm still on that whole belief that it will be by the fall. We've kind of covered a few misconceptions that people have. You've even been very proactive in this discussion in talking about things that people have talked about and sort of setting the record straight. Have I missed anything in terms of misconceptions about the COVID-19 vaccine specifically? In terms of misconceptions, um, the only thing that I would say to people is that there is this continual belief that the vaccine is the answer to all of our problems. And, you know, we've seen it in the news, social media, even health officials have talked about it, but really it's not. It is just a tool to get us where we can get to a point where we're not worrying. All right. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know about you, but even with the SkyTrain, Granville during a rush hour is still a nightmare. And I've done this numerous times where I'm literally sitting there going, how is this possible? There's not that many people who live in kits. Seriously. So the reality is that the vaccine is a tool, just like SkyTrain is a tool. And we are going to be able to use it to help us to contain COVID. But it's not going to stop the fact that we can still use barrier protection to be able to prevent transmission from one person to another. We can still use hand washing and hand sanitizers. And we can still use scarves or neck tubes or something else to actually prevent exposure to droplets. You know how I know that? Because that's what I've been saying for well over a decade. <laughs> it's just nobody's listened to me. And yes, I am a little bit annoyed at that. And you, you know why I'm annoyed at that? Because this year, y'all had to do it. And guess what? No flu, no RSV, no parainfluenza, no metanumoviruses. Our efforts to stop COVID-19 has stopped all the others. I don't like <laughs> my own horn, but I was right. We know how to protect ourselves. And thankfully, because of COVID-19, and yes, I actually did say something positive about a pandemic, we can now do it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So even after the vaccine has come out, even after you have rolled up your sleeves, do not forget about what you know. Do not forget about what you can do to be able to protect yourself. Because even when COVID-19 has come and gone, we'll still be able to use it to help prevent all those other viruses that make us miserable and crowd our healthcare facilities and put us at risk of going um, into a place where we just do not want to go every single year, usually three weeks before Christmas. Well, hey man, I'll give you validation they weren't listening before, but I know that a lot of people listen to you now. <laughs> but absolutely, you know, you raised some great points there. When we talk about, you know, moving on or moving forward or, or this not being, you know, the end-all be-all, I think everyone has done some self-reflection on how COVID-19 mm -hmm. has just changed the culture. So I, I want to give you a minute just to reflect on that as well. Like, do you think life will ever go back to normal, quote unquote, as we perceive it? Or mm -hmm. is the culture changed forever? I mean, it sounds like you're saying the culture has changed forever. Um, no, I'm hoping it'll be changed forever. 
Um, <laughs> but if you want the optimist to go away and the realist to come in, uh, you'll have forgotten all this by this time in 2023. <laughs> well, it, you know, yep. if I have forgotten about it, I'm, I hope I'm on a <laughs> beach somewhere because I get to travel somewhere tropical. I hope that's the reason. <laughs> but I will not forget so about it because when, we've had such a great chat. Oh, that's true. No, what I mean is we'll forget about what, everything we've done for the pandemic. Um, because think about it. Um, we started off this conversation by me actually saying, this is not my first pandemic, nor is it yours. Mm-hmm. How many of us actually remember that we had a flu pandemic 10 years ago? You know how I long did not. it took for people to forget? <laughs> yeah, it took two and a half years for people to forget. I know that because yeah. that was the research that I was in. And... <laughs> We could not believe that it disappeared so quickly. And it was really funny, too, because it disappeared so quickly at the exact same time as another kind of flu was coming out, an H5N1, and there were all sorts of weird scientific experiments going on trying to find out if they could, you know, make it more deadly in humans. Mm -hmm. Everybody got weird about that, but nobody remembered the fact that we actually had a pandemic just three years earlier. (laughs) And so in that light... Everything that I'm talking about, everything that I'm saying, regardless of how right I might have been, regardless of how much I want you to, is probably going to disappear by 2023, unless you, as a listener, you as a host, and me, continue to keep talking about what we've learned and the positives that we have taken from this particular pandemic moving into the future. That is one thing I'm not optimistic about, unfortunately. And so, basically... I will propose you this. I don't know which is going to be faster, but I have a feeling that we'll have forgotten about COVID-19 before the Canucks win the cup. (laughs) You had to go out on that, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? My hometown is Ottawa. I'm a Senators fan, kind of by trade. And I'm also an Oilers fan, kind of by trade now that I live here. Um, If I can have a chance to just diss the Canucks a little bit, I'm going to. (laughs) Jason, I'll let you have it. But listen, I have to say, I appreciate you explaining all of these questions in a very clear and easy to follow way. You know, despite Mm -hmm. knowing that the vaccine is here, I feel like There's still so much anxiety, certainly here in Vancouver, but I'm sure across the country. And the euphoria of when vaccines first came out, I think, has been supplanted by a lot of impatience. And just that realization that like, oh, yeah, we're still in a pandemic and we've still got to push through uh, optimistically at least a few more months. And I think Mm -hmm. that in that reality check, Uh, A lot of questions have popped up about the vaccine, and I'm sure more will in the future as well. But this has really been a treat for me to listen to you unpack the basics, because that's what I wanted to do. Even me, myself, as someone who follows the news, you know, there's a lot of these basic things I don't know or don't really understand. And you explained a lot of that. So uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate your work. What is your call to action in terms of how people can read more of you, how they can hear more of you, how they can see more of you, perhaps? Yeah, well, you said it off the top. Uh, the Super Awesome Science Show uh, has been actually focusing on the scientific aspects of COVID that people have probably heard about but really didn't know much about. So I would definitely mm-hmm. suggest that you know you go and listen to uh, the podcast. We've 
We've got a whole bunch of episodes, uh, not on COVID, but also, you know, we've got uh, well over 50 episodes from the previous year. Uh, but the other thing is, you know, what I want to do not only is educate, but I also want to interact. And, you know, the people in Vancouver, one of the reasons I love people in Vancouver is because they do interact with me. And if you do want to talk to me, I'm always on Twitter at JTetro. Uh, my my email, thegermguy at gmail.com. I've heard from so many of you already. And, I, you know, if you have a question and I didn't answer it here, please feel free. Send me a note. Happy to talk with you more about it. And, you know, I just want everybody to stay as safe as they possibly can be. I love that. Jason, this was super awesome, my man. I really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you. You've really been a resource, uh, not just to me, but I think even the people of Vancouver, even though you're not in BC. Anytime I hear that you're doing a spot on CKNW, I'm always sure to tune in. I just learned so much from you, and I really appreciate what you're doing. So stay safe, my friend, and all the best to you and your family. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. Take care. People, when it's your turn, make sure to go out and get vaccinated. In the meantime, stay up to date on all of this stuff. It is so important right now. You don't have to tune in to every government briefing on vaccines, but make sure you're keeping an eye on all the developments because all this stuff affects you. And in terms of resources, I can't think of a better guest to explain the nuts and bolts of the coronavirus and the vaccine than our guest today. What a beaut. He is, of course, the host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast and the author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files. He is the germ guy. He is Jason Tetro. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>